mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. And we're here to tell their stories. Here's your host, Andrew Lawrence. Not all of us look the way the world expects us to look, think as the world expects us to think, or arrive at our destination the way the world expects us to. On the Square Peg Podcast, we give a voice to mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less traveled. I'm your host, Andrew Lawrence, and here are their stories. Thank you to the Searchlight Needles for getting us started as always. The hashtag needles aren't just a quartet of middle-aged, overweight, and balding El Pasoans. Robert Martinez, Josh Smith, Adrian Ortiz, and David Sines are four really fantastic guys who hold down jobs and take care of families during the week, and they rock out on weekends. You can find them on the web at www.searchlightneedles.com. You can find them on Facebook, and you can download their album on all streaming services. Have you experienced pain in your lower extremities, even your hips or lower back after standing or walking? Your feet may not fit in your shoes or on the ground properly. Soulman Foot Insoles, with 30 years' experience making people's feet feel more comfortable, can help. Henry Soulman Veloz is the official insole provider for UTEP Athletics and has made custom insoles for my athletic, casual, dress shoes, and work boots for 15 years now. You can find him on Facebook at Soulman Custom Foot Insoles, or you can call him at 915-241-2153. That is S-O-L-E-M-A-N Custom Foot Insoles on Facebook and call him. 915-241-2153. My guest today, as has been the case with many of my previous guests, uh, is a personal friend of mine, a personal friend of my family. He's a Las Cruces native. He's a husband, a father, a registered nurse, and he's been instrumental in the pandemic response of one of the three hospitals here in Las Cruces. Todd Stuvey, welcome to the Square Peg Podcast. Larry, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. It seems like we've had this conversation before, but we won't go into that. Um Todd, so uh, it, it's really interesting because I we started this podcast, uh, started recording last August for season one. We, we began season two a little over a month ago, and so that entire time has been during the pandemic, and I, I know I've made a point uh, definitely during season two to start off by asking people how, how they've dealt with the pandemic or how it's affected their life and how they've had to alter their, their personal and professional lives, and of course, Turns out that's what our entire episode is going to be about today because of what you do for a living and what your uh, particular assignment has been for almost the past year. Um, now, you're from Las Cruces, and you went to NMSU, got your Bachelor of Science in Nursing, and then you ended up with a Master's degree. Am I, am I tracking correctly? Yes, you are. Um, what got you interested in nursing? So that's a really good question, too. Um, I knew from an earlier age that I wanted to do something health-ish, and I wasn't exactly sure what that looked like. I, I looked at medicine, I looked at nursing, I looked at other types of um, respiratory therapy, all those things. I really didn't know what I wanted to do, except I know I wanted to be in something that would you know, challenge me, make me, uh, make me always want to be involved. And a long story short, I found that nursing was a fantastic intro to just about anything I could get my hands into within the hospital setting. And I kind of have a little bit of an adrenaline junkie background, and it really uh, pointed the direction for me into the adult intensive care unit. And I'm, as I'm sitting here interviewing you and looking at you, I finally figured out, you've been here like 15 minutes, I'm figuring out why you don't look like Todd. I, when was the last time I saw you without a goatee? You know, I think I've had facial hair of some kind, uh, <laughs> probably the entire time you've known me. And uh, sure, having COVID in our world right now means that I'm not, uh, I'm not shaving so that I can have a good uh, fit for mask seal. But uh, you're right, I got longer hair on top and much less hair on my face, so I do look different. I've been sitting here looking at you for the last 15 minutes. Well, what is it about Todd that's different? I can't figure it out. I figured it out. You shaved your goatee. 
But um, so now you you spent your entire uh, up until very recently there were two hospitals. I remember when there was one hospital. Oh yeah, uh, Memorial Medical Center. When I first moved here in 1999, and not long after that, uh, Mountain View popped up, and now we've got three crosses. You spent your entire now 15, 16 year career. Now um, the, we, we've got in 1999 when I moved here, uh, there was uh, just the one hospital. And then um, not long after that, the second one popped up. And now we've got a third one, which uh, just opened in the past year. You've spent uh, your entire, what, now 15, 16-year career here in, in one spot, and um, which I found is actually a little bit different uh, considering some of the same people we know. It looks like there's been a lot of bouncing back and forth between the two hospitals and then some people going uh, into working for private practices and one even having been a school nurse. Um, is, is it uh, – how did it come about that you have been felt so comfortable uh, staying in one place? No, absolutely. That's a good question. Um, I think it comes down to two key factors for me personally. I think the relationships of those you work around, and, and oftentimes you do spend so much time at work that it does become a second family to you. So having those key connections with people that challenge you to be better and to grow, and really also to have uh, internal growth opportunities so that if you feel like you're getting stagnant, you, can, you really can continue to see what else do I want to do, what's something lateral, different or above that I want to strive for. So for me, it, it's been the best decision I've continued to make. You know, I just actually, before you came in, I got done interviewing another friend who is also a nurse. Uh, he lives, uh, works down in El Paso, and he had mentioned something about men, you know, men being somewhat of a minority uh, among nurses. Has that been the case for you? And um, uh, what's that experience been like? Do you feel like you, uh, as a male, you bring in maybe a different perspective to the, the nursing profession? I think absolutely. I mean, we all individually do. I think the collective, um, the collective genders bring in different differences as well. I know that when I was choosing a career, I have to admit, mentally, I was a little bit nervous about breaking some of those stereotypes, thinking, gosh, men and nursing, is that a thing? Uh, what about medicine? There's more men in medicine at that point in time than, than women. And I'm so glad that I made the decisions that I did uh, because it does fit my personality and really looking at all options for patient care and, and holistically treating patients. But getting into the hospital, I think you have to get through school first, and that's the first real challenge, and recognizing what the real professional world is going to look like once you get into that setting. And I love that there's a balance of personalities, and we all bring something different to the table. And I personally feel that if there's a mix of, of genders and ways of thinking and perspectives, that you actually get better input and better decisions, less tension, to be quite honest with you. Well, that's not um, you know not too surprising, and and it's good to hear that. Now you ended up um, spending the most of the time on uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, as opposed to being in education where you are now, uh, direct care nursing. You is that the correct term? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Right. Uh, so you spent you spent the, all that time uh, working in intensive care. How did you end up working in ICU, and what is it about ICU that's held your attention for that long? So for me personally, uh, I love the science of the really most, and I'll even use the word nerdy, most technical aspects of, of healthcare. And ICU continue to hold my attention. Um, I love the challenge, the in-depth reading and training you needed to take on to be able to care for those patients safely. And I had a good friend that I didn't know at the time when I met him was going to be a good friend and an influence on, you know what, this is an example of what family life outside of work looks like to me. Uh, I know you, I've seen you in school, I'd like you to come work here. And it was kind of an introduction to the units, and um, as a lot of new nurses get, uh, practicing at night shift, I shouldn't say practicing, but learning at night shift is a 
is a good way to do it because there's a little bit less hassle of people that, uh, like myself now, are asking questions and coming around during the daytime. But uh, you get a chance to learn with a good safety net without quite as much interruption. Now, you spent uh, a good bit of time uh, working on the floor uh, in intensive care, but up until about a year ago, you spent time uh, in charge of uh, nursing education. Uh, what was the job title? And I know, and I know that we're we're um, we're kind of treading lightly, and we're not talking about any specific employers or hospitals or anything like that. But what was your job title uh, before you know up until about this time last year? Sure. No, absolutely, and uh, really, and. Job title continues to formally be and was then uh, Director of Educational Services, which is a, is a job title and a hat that has attachments that can have other hats attached to that hat. So what were you doing as director? I mean, when we, we're talking about Director of Education, we're not talking about any local nursing schools. We're talking about continuing education. Absolutely. And so I get that question often um, as opposed to a director of like a, a college or a some other type of secondary education where it might be a little bit more clear-cut what that leadership looks like. It is the niche for all education that comes into the hospital, and it's really at a real simple level. People come into the hospital, they need to have very specific orientation. We need to make sure they understand all the ways to keep themselves and people around them safe, and then there's specific things that need to be taught for their particular job. And that's all part of the onboarding experience. But then we grow, we take on new challenges, new service lines. Uh, We find that there's gaps and the way we maybe are performing based on what we should be performing, and that's the ongoing types of education, and uh, lots of things in between, too. Now, when you're talking about continuing education, we're talking about just nurses, or are we also talking about techs, um, respiratory therapists, uh, people like that? I'm I'm assuming the medical doctors would have their own educational uh, pathway or, or I don't know what you call it. So, no, you're, you're on the right track, uh, but it is a little bit of everything, to be quite honest with you. Some of the parts of onboarding and a- ongoing education are absolutely something that we have to make sure every single person that comes through our door gets the same exposure to. Uh, department or uh, service line specific orientation, we do reach out to our partners in those areas that know uh, much more clearly how that works and feels. But uh, we also have access to ongoing medical education for providers. And the cool thing about things like medical education is that it also – allows other disciplines who are dealing with that same type of scenario to attend those types of lectures and give a really well-rounded series of of, uh, feedback. And that's the way you really want to learn, where everybody's speaking the same language, and then you go out and you do the same thing. Now, I'm assuming, um, like like a lot of other professions that have any kind of regulatory oversight by the state or, or even larger entities, um, nursing probably requires some sort of state certification, yes or no? Oh, yes, it does. It's licensure to practice. And I know, for example, in law enforcement, uh, the state law enforcement academy uh, and the Department of Public Safety require uh, a minimum of 40 hours of continuing education at every every biennium. Uh, and that's a bare minimum. And that's there are certain core, basically core things that, that, that they require people to learn. Uh, and then, of course, most agencies go well above and beyond that, uh, providing training. Um, can I also assume that in nursing, the state, was it the State Department of Health? It's actually the State Board of Nursing. Okay, so the State Board of Nursing requires what of people to maintain their, their certifications and, and for what period of time? 
Sure. So yes, definitely a um, it's a licensure to practice operation, similar to practicing medicine or respiratory therapy, etc. Um, basically, the ground level, the minimum standard to continue your license is thirty hours of continuing education credit that is approved for really what you do within a two-year period. And every state has a separate board of nursing, and they might infuse different uh, specific requirements depending on what they might be facing or might find more important. I know in New Mexico, uh, we also look at specific requirements between nursing and medicine that might deal with uh, responsible opiate practice and things like that. Um, but then there's additional certifications beyond that that are not a requirement to be a nurse, but sometimes are recommended, preferred, or required to work in certain areas that are similar to being perhaps board certified as like a physician might. And those take on additional uh, overtime continuing education requirements. Now, in your position, are you actually conducting the instruction? Are you leading the instruction in a, in a classroom setting, or are you more of an administrator? It's kind of a it's kind of a mixed bag. I think the more time that I spend in a director role, I, I find that I don't spend quite as much time in the classroom as I did in the beginning. But the nice thing is that it continues to have new opportunities to jump into a new area of content. Uh, so while I might not spend quite as much time teaching every single day, um, I still do get a chance every every couple of weeks to jump back in. Now, something that was a big surprise to me, and, and of course, any, anybody who works in any profession that has spawned or inspired any network television, television drama, um, we've seen that our profession has been misrepresented or simplified or, or made more interesting for television. I remember asking my cousin, a first cousin of mine who is a medical doctor and family practice in the Midwest, when when the COVID pandemic first hit, I asked him, now, how much instruction is it? Was it one semester or two or whatever that you get of pandemic response in medical school? And, and I could hear him laughing through, and I honestly don't remember whether it was a telephone call or was a text message. Either way, I could tell he was laughing. And the answer was none. And of course, I based my question on every hospital drama I've ever watched, there's one episode at least where there's some sort of outbreak of some infection and everybody springs into action. Everybody knows the protocol. Everybody knows exactly what to do. These drape, these plastic, you know, air sealed drapes that keep ventilation in magically appear out of nowhere and everything is fairly seamless. Well, maybe not at first because that's not that interesting, but everybody knows exactly what to do. And there's this protocol that everybody follows, and there are no mistakes, and everybody seems to know what to do. And I was just really surprised to know that wasn't the case. Did you have any exposure uh, prior to the the COVID pandemic that broke out? You know, the, the first case was a little over a year ago in the United States. Um, be it in nursing school or during your graduate studies or during your either participating in and or leading uh, nursing education at your employer, did you have any exposure to anything like this? I really like your uh, analogy to the way you see it on TV, where sometimes the most glamorously portrayed aspects of healthcare make the best uh, entertainment. But you're very right, and the conversation you had uh, with your, your family friend was, was very correct, too. Pandemic response, unless you have a specific niche job working in that field, where you might be seeing things like that and preparing for things like that all the time, quite honestly, for the greatest aspect of healthcare is not something that is the bulk of the education that nurses or physicians or other disciplines learn. Um, I might remember a text or a few pieces about uh, the epidemiological crisis we've seen 100 years ago that were similar to what we're seeing today, and those pictures are black and white, and there's a lot of lost memory of how that looks then and how it feels today with different technology in place. But to answer your question uh, simply, 
really, no, there was a lot of new ground to be covered. And then potentially working with partners that had plans in place and then educating all of us about what that looks like. Now, we, anybody who's watched the news or read a newspaper or seen anything online in the last year is familiar with uh, uh, the name Dr. Anthony Fauci. And I know that, um, not not to get political, but I know that certain elected officials have a responsibility to, to listen to people who are experts in a field, and that's, that's who that would be on the national level. Uh, here locally, I would imagine there are private practice who practitioners who, who deal with infectious diseases here in Las Cruces, uh, in Doniana County and El Paso. Has there been the same type of guidance or working uh, kind of cooperative working together uh, between the hospitals and local infectious disease specialists, or has it more been the New Mexico Department of Health? No, that's, a, that's a good question, too. Um, I think Dr. Fauci has certainly become uh, very public and is an iconic figure. I really think of times like this as the Olympics for infectious prevention and infectious uh, disease specialists. This is the time when they really get to shine and, and step into action and really demonstrate a leadership role in what they do. So absolutely, um, especially for those that are trying to get back on the horse of exactly what this type of pandemic response looks like, to survive well, um, you have to rely on your partners. You have to look to those that have more expertise um, some areas might have somebody in an employee health or an infectious prevention role that doesn't have quite the depth of experience as other hospitals. And so we have to lean on each other's expertise and uh, really just make sure that everybody's pitching in where they need to. Now, you were director of nursing education up until about this time last year. You were obviously, uh, because of necessity, were moved into a new position with a new title or at least a title and then a position added to what you are already doing. And what was that new title and that new position? Sure. So it is um, the, the director of education job is still at what, I, what I embody every single day. Um, so really it, it falls into some additional roles that are, are needed for the time. And it had to do with uh, logistics uh, section uh, officer for that. And really that's, that's just a, a fancy way of saying we need to have appointed people in specific ways to be able to work together when something comes up that's in their ballpark and we can count on those people, and then also to train people behind them because we recognize people might get sick, uh, people might win the lottery, people might get abducted by aliens, and you need to be able to have some depth. So it's really been a new opportunity for growth for me, and it's been exciting. Do you think that you were tapped um, because you had some sort of uh, experience with logistics specifically, or you were tapped because who, whatever it is that puts you in the position you're in, recognized uh, you can do the job, and this is what. Do you have a back? Maybe this is my long way of saying: Do you have a background in logistics? Have you ever have you ever been in a position to be in charge of logistics of anything professionally uh, as a nurse? I think so much of what uh, education does is is about the details, uh, the big picture, and the details and logistics. I would say I don't have formal background until really this year going through disaster management. And so that was a fun new learning opportunity for me. But I did have a, a solid reputation of rolling many things out throughout the facility that involved a great deal of buy-in, varying amounts of time, varying groups. And so it really did come with the territory. And at the time, uh, it, did seem, it did seem to fit like the next step. Now, how much discretion did you have in, in deciding how you were going to run things and run testing and things like that? I mean, were you, were you literally the shot caller or was there a, some sort of a collaborative effort? Uh, how did that all work? Absolutely collaborative. And we all hold different parts of information, different keys of subject matter expertise. 
So really, hospitals and other facilities were expected during an emergency response like this to stand up their own form of incident command, where they bring together those identifiable roles and bring in the other subject matter experts as they need to. And really, that was meeting as often as we needed to meet. And Sometimes it was multiple times a day. Sometimes it was daily. Sometimes it was ad hoc meetings because we wanted to make sure the decisions made really reflected the answers based on the best available information. So it really was almost never in a vacuum. Now, it's funny. You, you mentioned a term that I actually hadn't really heard too often with regard to the pandemic, um, emergency management. And, um, you know, you hear a lot about the Department of Health. And I know through through speaking to you um, back in May when I got my first COVID test, um, that it is, as a matter of fact, it is, in fact, the Department of Health who supply the the actual testing kits and the ones who analyze do the do the testing themselves. But there is a federal emergency management management agency, and I know that there is, uh, and I have known and worked with people uh, over the years who have worked at the uh, Doniana County Office of, Office of Emergency Management. Uh, how much have you worked? Have they been involved? Uh, the Office of Emergency Management. As a matter of fact, now that I now that I mentioned it, that's where I went and got my second COVID test. Um, I would imagine you've worked with them as well. Yes, that's correct. Yes, the Office of Emergency Management, uh, different uh, municipalities from city to county to state. Uh, there's different opportunities for those groups to come together frequently and share updates, strategy plan, and uh, really identify where barriers might exist and where they can help each other. Now, uh, on the subject of the New Mexico Department of Health, and like I said, I, I had asked you, um, I think I texted you right after I got my first test, and I did the drive-through, and it was easy, and um, I was actually had prepared myself to get my brain scraped, and I was pleasantly surprised that I got my throat swabbed instead, which isn't exactly pleasant, but it's a lot less unpleasant than the other the other method of test, uh, which I got the second time, uh, unfortunately. Um, it might have been my third time. I think I may have gotten two. I think I might have gotten two two uh, at the drive through there that were the throat swabs. But I had asked you. I said, "Hey, is that is that normal?" And and I guess you you told me you just guys use whatever the Department of Health gives you. So, th yes, there were definitely some uh, changes with the availability of supplies on a number of levels, as many of us know throughout the country, uh, as they became available. Uh, the important thing was that we were able to look at what are those known test methods that we know can test for this virus, uh, be it an oral swab, be it uh, what Larry refers to as the brain scraper, which is the deeper nasopharyngeal swab, albeit more accurate sometimes. Uh, we really did make the best use of every supply kit that we had access to. And uh, it, your reaction is, is common to others where some folks would even be in a line to become tested and they'd ask, which one is it, nose or mouth? And then some people would say, okay, I'll stay anyways. Other people would actually get out of line and drive away after waiting for a little bit of time. So, uh, But, yeah, to answer your question, yes, we did use what we had. Now, at the time, I, I think my last test was probably in September. Um, it sounds to me like, and, and both of the places, you know, the first place I got tested was, um, was it one of the you know the local local medical providers, uh, large medical providers, uh, and the second one actually, or the, or the last one I got it when I drove through where uh, the New Mexico Department of Health is, um, which I believe also does house the Doniana County Office of Emergency Management in the same building. Um, it seems to me that uh, COVID tests have come. I don't want to use the term more common, but more people are doing them. Where else are people getting? Are people going to the are primary care physicians testing? I mean, where are people going now to get tested for COVID? The opportunities have expanded. I think that was a call from the beginning, uh, needing to have more access to tests because if you can't test and you can't, you can't contact trace, you can't identify to quarantine, isolate, et cetera. 
And so beyond what the state levels have been able to produce, we've seen some of the private practice labs step up and help, which has been really, really awesome. And not only are they able to maybe see patients and obtain the specimens there, they're setting up different relationships where maybe if there's people within a doctor's office that know how to obtain that specimen and get it to their lab, then that might be a more local or time-efficient way of getting a test done. And it continues to provide options to the community, including pharmacies. It, the number keeps growing along with the types of test methods that you're hearing about. So is it safe to say that probably by the end of this year, at the latest, testing for COVID is going to be almost like testing for the flu? Wherever it is that you go to get your health care, you ought to be able to get a safe and reliable um, and a timely test. You know what? That would be really cool. It'd be cool to see that. It just becomes ubiquitous. It's part of how we treat uh, similar other types of uh, novel pathogens, the way that we're able to test for the flu, uh, for strep throat, et cetera. I think uh, it'll continue to become more commonplace at all the ways you normally seek health care. Now, without mentioning specific employers or spe specific providers, um, like I said, we know that there are three hospitals here in Las Cruces and probably count like a dozen or so in, in El Paso. Are you aware, is there a certain amount of uniformity to how tests uh, are being administered and analyzed, uh, the logistics and how things are done, or, or are there variations um, between one, one place to the next that you're aware of? So I know it all comes from a common, a common process and a protocol uh, so that they have good reliability and trust that the results are accurate. Uh, so being uh, partners that work with the, the group that actually runs tests, it's super important that you, you have people that follow the test procedures and the chain of custody the same way. Um, how they actually accomplish the throughput of that, you do see creativity within it. And you, we've seen lots of different types of things. And a lot of that has to do with potentially the, you know, the history and the resources of that one facility and how many people they can get through in a period of time. Is it something that's a walk-in based thing? Is it schedulable? Is it drive-through? Um, and I've seen, I've seen some differences. But the reassuring thing for me is that the way that I'm watching the careful attention to chain of custody of obtaining that specimen and getting it to the lab as quick as possible, I think that's what makes me comfortable. Now, it seems that you have you may have moved in to, to some degree uh, from working on the logistics of testing now into the, the administration of the vaccine. And, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I got my first dose of the Pfizer vaccine um, on December 23rd and then my second dose on January 13th. And guess who I ran into both times? I ran into Mr. Todd Stuvey. Right. Um, it, has there been an official switch in your duties or is this more of a, con uh, a continuation of... Because we're not, it's not like we stopped testing people, but now we have another thing to do. We can test and we can vaccinate. Uh, tell me how that, uh, what that change has been. Has it been a change in title or change in what you're doing at work? So definitely, um, you know, the jobs that we end up doing at work uh, continue to evolve to fit the needs of the pandemic response. It falls back to that core group of people within our incident command team. We're able to look at who are the right groups of people to bring in at this time and for what reasons. So, yes, that's something that I've definitely been uh, – very um, included since the very beginning in terms of the vaccine response and coordination. Uh, still have some other things that are starting to thaw out in the regular world of education. So it is a little bit of a, a juggling game sometimes, but we are, we are deep into the vaccination efforts right now. Now, do you see, uh, is, is there more than one vaccine locally here or is it, is it by state? I mean, I know I got the Pfizer or, or the other, I can't think of the, the name of the other one, the Moderna one, and I know there's a couple others coming out. Um, the way those are being distributed, are we only getting one in the state of New Mexico, or how is that working, do you know? 
So the way that I understand it, I know uh, we work primarily with the Pfizer product, which has come out first and is uh, connected more with the Department of Health. Um, I'm less familiar with the other vaccines, although I believe in listening to what I hear from Department of Health, the Moderna vaccine, which is also a messenger RNA two-dose series vaccine similar to the Pfizer product, they are focusing more on the pharmacies as the primary hubs uh, to be able to begin um, looking at some of the congregate living facilities uh, like nursing homes, elder care homes, and working on vaccinating both the residents and the caretakers there. And then I think that also puts them in a good position. If they haven't started, I think they will be doing it soon, uh, vaccinating more of the public as the phase shifts to more of that 1C category. Now, my understanding, I know a lot of, I've personally have spoken with people, and I know people who are basically waiting to see how you and I uh, fare and whether or not we grow a third eye or a, a horn in the back of our head. Um, and, and I know that there are people who have concerns about not having long-term studies and this and that. My understanding has been that the platform uh, or the basis for the the development of, of these vaccines for COVID-19 uh, are based on already vaccines they already have for pre-existing or, 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 or the swine flu or H1N1. Am I in the right track? So the use of uh, mRNA uh, technology for a vaccine, as I understand it, is fairly new for this type of approach, but the use of mRNA in treating other uh, cancer diagnoses is not new. So it's not something that's like completely brand new. We don't know anything about it. There is, there is solid history working within the cancer and the oncology population. But in terms of uh, treating this type of novel pathogen, it seems like the mRNA uh, companies, they were first to come out of the gate. And also, not in a way that I feel personally cut corners to make me feel unsafe about receiving it myself or to advocate that it would be given to others. And now a word from our sponsor. Lorenzo's Italian Restaurant has been a part of the Las Cruces community for over 25 years, supporting schools, shelters, and veterans. Even during COVID times, Lorenzo's is offering patio tent dining, delivery, curbside pickup, chow now online, and mobile app ordering. Now offering customers any signature or two-topping pizza for only $15. There's only one Lorenzo's in town, and it's at 1753 East University in Pan Am Plaza. You can call 575-521-3505. And ladies and gentlemen, just a little bit of ad lib here. If you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball, you've never had a Lorenzo's meatball. By the way, dip their bread they're in some of the oil with a little bit of salt, a little bit of Parmesan. You will not be disappointed, I guarantee you. Um, there is, I've had the thought and just had the conversation actually last week, um, spoke with my cousin. So I mentioned my cousin before who's in family practice. His son actually is a first-year medical student at Texas Tech, and I actually happened to be down in El Paso, and I was doing some work, and I was literally right around the corner from his house. So I stopped by, and we, we met outside, and we talked for a few minutes, and had the thought with him, and I know that um, I've had this conversation, may have had this conversation with you and other people in the medical profession. Chances are, uh, fingers crossed, we don't deal with another pandemic like this in our lifetimes. However, people who are medical students right now and who are nursing students and people who are practicing in any way, shape, or form in the medical field are gaining firsthand experience in how to deal with something like this. And I would imagine that you guys, whether you're in nursing education or not, will be in a position to share those experiences and help shape nursing and medical education uh, for the rest of your careers, at least. Have you already begun working on curricula 
for pandemic response, virology, infectious diseases um, at your current position? Uh, the answer to that is yes. And it's happening where we're at in a hospital setting. I guarantee you it's also happening in other places that are charged with formal education at a higher level institute. This is something that, you're right, this is such a novel time for any healthcare student to come into the practice. So from the very beginning, uh, one of the hardest things that we had to deal with, Larry, was allowing ourselves the permission to break the mold of this is always the way that we've done medicine. This is always the way we've been trained. Uh, for example, this is the way that we've been trained to wear our personal protective equipment when there's no concerns about supply ever and every single use can be uh, disposable every single time. And when we started to learn about national, worldwide shortages of certain types of personal protective equipment, we had to look to our experts, still at the CDC at the WHO. How do you then manage doing the safest thing possible for yourself and your patients when you don't have optimal supplies? And thank God they do have the resources and the knowledge and the playbooks for how to do that, although it's not familiar to, the most, to most people that are actually working the bedside day to day. So to work on educating a group of healthcare professionals either still in school, recently out of school, or maybe 30 years on the job, and describe the reasons why we need to shift in a certain way to maybe do a certain procedure, uh, we need to use certain techniques to sterilize our, our respirator masks, for example, so that we lengthen the life of those. It was extremely difficult because if that is something different than you've ever been taught because of safety, you have to find a way to change the belief system so they understand all of the big picture and transparency as an adult learner is key to that. Now you um, you have some interesting connections. I know that you uh, you're married married to a policymaker of sorts. Um, you have got children at home, and you know you've got some concerns at home with uh, I won't say immune compromised people with some some long term uh, long term health concerns that might make them more a little bit more uh, ha cause to be m more concerned. Um, about exposure and things like that, do you feel like you personally um, and your family have taken probably the more conservative approach to protecting yourself and being out and about in public as opposed to some other people um, we see out and about? Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question. And I would say, I would say that we do. Um, as Larry mentioned, a couple of members of the family do have uh, some higher-risk comorbid conditions that place them on a riskier spot should they come down with COVID. And so we, we recognize that early on. Uh, the different professional organizations that track those different conditions recommended, you need to be as safe as possible. You need to be on the more conservative scales in terms of limiting your risk. I really liked it when this different states and the Department of Health started to educate the public with sort of a risk factor meter. And so you were able to even gauge the riskiness of your behavior based upon what the likelihood of transmission might be. And there's even differences between what might be considered legal or illegal or against public ordinance. Uh, maybe it's still acceptable to go dine in at a restaurant. But for example, that's typically rated as more of a higher or moderately high risk for transmission. That would be an activity that, for example, our family is still not doing, even though in certain circumstances it might be allowable just based on the knowledge of the risk factors. And every family, I think, has to have those conversations about what is our acceptable risk tolerance level, and that really guides your future decisions until we're all at a better place. Yeah, and I've, I've found, I think, and we're, you know, you and I are, uh, there's, it's no wonder that people are kind of drawn to those who are in the same situation or 
same place in life and kind of had to have the same values. And I think that your family and mine have taken, uh, and, and fortunately we in my family don't have comorbidities and, and underlying health conditions that might make us at more risk. But I know that we also have been very uh, conservative, if you will. I don't know that I would ever use the word conservative to describe my family, but in this regard, we are. Um, you know, the kids have been home from, from school and the wife uh, works uh, for the school system and she's been able to be home and, and she's having a very difficult time dealing with the weight of being at home all the time. And um, just when you thought you had everything, just when we thought we could kind of see the light at the end of the tunnel with these vaccines, now we've got these variants. All things considered, and everything that we know about the virus and the vaccinations and these new these new strains that are being identified, what's your best case scenario um, for when life is going to be somewhat normal? Uh, could you give any kind of timeline? Are we talking summer? Are we talking you know the end of twenty twenty one? I mean, what's what's your best guess? All things considered, when when there's going to be some semblance of of getting back to normalcy. Such a such a good question, and I'll I'll phrase it as this is the possible um, magic eight ball according to Todd. I think, in my opinion, we're going to start to see some changes feel more normal as more of the public become more vaccinated, and so we're still working through most of the phase one A, which are service line medical professionals. Uh, there's been some shift within the state to get into the one B, those that have uh, advanced age or comorbid conditions. When we get to that true 1C phase two category, where it just basically becomes freely available to any members of the public that want it. be great at some point when children can also be included in the research to be uh, part of the recommendation to receive it as well. You'll start to see quell on the daily spread rate, on the transmission rate. I know for New Mexico, we're in that red to green path. Uh, I think for us to see appreciable changes in those stats, county by county, that's going to be when the majority of our team develop herd immunity. I know uh, there's some direction in terms of, are we safe to start schools, yes or no. Um, I think it won't feel to me just getting normal until we get through the end of summer, early fall. And then some of the practices that we're doing now, like, like washing your hands often, wearing masks, physical distancing, that still might be in effect for quite some time. As we still have so much more to learn about not only this original virus strain, but the different, the different variants that are coming well, we are getting to the end of our time. Uh, father, husband, community member, nurse, educator, and master of logistics at managing pandemics, Todd Stuvey, thank you for being my guest on the Square Peg Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. We will see you next time on the Square Peg Podcast, where we interview mold breakers, trailblazers, and takers of roads less travel. Proudly produced by LasCrucesToday.com and Bravo Mike Communications.